Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this, this day and ask you to bless this study. We thank you for the rain and this ask your spirit to guide and lead us as we look at your word and to see what you would have us to see from this. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 17, we finished up the um, prophecy against Moab and we're going to start the prophecy against Damascus. Verse 1. The burden of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. The cities of Aor uh, are forsaken, and they shall be for flocks, which shall lie down, and none shall make them afraid. The fortress also shall cease from Ephraim, and the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria, they shall be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. And in that day shall come to pass, the glory of Jacob shall be made thin, and the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. And it shall be as when the harvestman gathered the corn, and reaped the ear with the arm, and it shall be as he that gathereth ears in the valley of Rephrim. Yet gleaning grapes shall be left, and the shaking of the olive tree, two or berries on the top of the uttermost brow. Four or five of the outermost branch, fruitful branches thereof, says the Lord God. At that day shall man look to his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel, and he shall not look to the altars, the work of his hands, neither shall respect that which his fingers have made, neither the groves nor the images. In that day shall his strong cities be as, forsake, as a forsaken brow, and the utter uppermost branches which they left because of the children of Israel and there shall be desolation. I'm going to stop there because now let's, let's finish this actual paragraph. Because you have forsaken the God of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of your strength, therefore shall your, your plant shall you plant blessed, pleasant plants and shall set it with strange slips. In that day shall you make your shall you make your plant to grow, and in the morning shall you make your seed to flourish, but the harvest shall be a heap in the day of grief and a desperate sorrow. Alright. So here we have a prophecy against Damascus. Damascus is the capital of Syria, which is to the northern part of uh, Israel, and Damascus still exists today and is still a major city in that area, which tells us that this prophecy has not been fulfilled completely. <laughs> All right, Damascus did fall as a major power at, you know, during the time of the kings, but it was ne has never been devastated, which means that sometime in the future, the rest of this prophecy will be <laughs> fulfilled. And this is one of the things when we read these prophecies of these places, we see it starts out with the fall of Syria. You know, Syria was a mighty power, and by the time we get around to uh, Jesus' day, Syria has fallen kind of by the wayside. Damascus still exists. It still exists as a country, but it has never been the powerhouse that it was back in this particular time of the prophecy. And we had... Egypt is a major power. We had Assyria as a major power uh, during that period of time. And then Assyria, which is where Nineveh is in the Fertile Crescent, rises up 
as a great power. Uh, and this prophecy is Damascus shall be judged. And it is going to be partially judged, but not to, not to be in a ruinous heap like it says in verse 1. Uh, it has not been completely demolished in, in all of history. That will come most likely during the reign of Christ when Christ comes back. Uh, maybe before that, I don't know. It's possible to be before that. But Damascus is up there on your map on the north, way up on the north, barely, uh, barely on the map. On the right, right-hand corner of the map is Damascus, because we didn't really, we're showing mostly Israel on this map, and Damascus is way, you know, just above them. Uh, it says that it's going to be a ruinous heap. The cities of A or Er are forsaken. Now, this is kind of interesting. This is a prophecy against Syria, and A or Er is way down in Moab, <laughs> okay, down on the Arnon River. Uh, that's quite a difference. Syria did not ever own that area as far as I can remember from any of my history. But I think God is pronouncing a judgment on all of the Gentile nations in that, in that realm through that, through that. But he's also saying, you know, the cities of Ai are forsaken. Remember, we just got done talking about Moab being destroyed. So I think, he's, I think he's drawing a parallel. And part of what ends up in, in Jewish poetry, they do not try to rhyme their sentences. They do not try to use alliteration like we do in, in English a lot of times. They use compare and contrast or uh, comparing two things or contrasting two things in their poetry. And that's what they use as their poetry. So I think here we're having a kind of poetic setting. Damascus is going to be destroyed just as Ao A or Air has been has been has been is, will be destroyed. Um, it's not really poetic, but I, but that style would be part of their thinking, the way they think. So they show a parallel between these, and they shall be for flocks to lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So we see this frequently in in these stories that when in, when a city is destroyed, that the animals take over the the uh, area, and he says the flocks will go there. And you can picture that, you know, sheep or goats would probably enjoy being in, a, in an enclosed area. Uh, animals of all types like that, you know. One thing about dogs that I've noticed, the dogs like to find something that's cave-like when they want to get away with, away. We had one dog that would go hide under the end table, which was sitting next to the couch with a chair next to it, and then, you know, and that was his retreat. So when the kids were little, we said, okay, the dog's going there. You leave the dog alone. He's wanting to get away from you. Because he would actually growl at people if they tried to get in there. So the animals tend to like these areas where there's field of protection. And they're walled cities, and the buildings are walled, and they're going to be collapsed. They're not much good for human beings. But they do give the animals something to put, put on, behind them on, on, you know, to, to go against. And, but it says, you know, the sheep, the flocks are going to go there, and they're going to be uh, not afraid. They're going to lie down and not be afraid. So there's no men there. There's nothing else, and there, there's no fear for the animals. But, you know, this talks about God's total destruction that's coming. And for each of these places, most of them have not fallen into complete ruin. So this may be 
in the reign of Christ, some of these cities are going to be totally destroyed. And at that time, the animals aren't afraid anyway, so it's kind of, you know, the, the lion will lie down with the lamb and the, you know, and uh, the child will play on the, the app's hold, you know, without fear of the snake. So we, we see a very interesting view here. Verse 3 says, The fortress shall also cease from Ephraim, and Ephraim is another name for Israel, northern kingdom. And we've talked about this before. The northern kingdom has several names to it. Okay, Judah is the southern kingdom. So you'll hear Judah, southern kingdom, and sometimes they even call them Israel. <laughs> the northern kingdom is usually uh, the northern kingdom, but it is also called Ephraim, Israel. It's even called Samaria a couple of times. It gets very confusing, which is why I'm telling you these as you start reading these things and you start, you know, Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is actually one of the tribes of Israel, but it is also one of the major tribes of the northern kingdom. So, you know, and this is why when, I, when we get these things, I, I like to mention all the different names you would, would uh, hear. Just as we said for Jerusalem, it's called Zion or or the mountain of the Lord, you know, there's several names for it. Uh, so that when you're reading through and you, you say, well, gee, I know where Jerusalem is, but where's Mount Zion? Where's, where, where's this? Well, they're one and the same. Because they were said, I don't you said they're the same. I said, okay. Yeah. And so you really, when you, when you read the word Israel in the Old Testament, you've got to read it in context and say, is it talking about the northern kingdom? Is it talking about the, the whole place? Is it talking about the, the patriarch of, the, named Israel? So you, you want to be able to read it in context, and it takes a little bit of getting used to. Um, we kind of like the idea of everything having one name, but that's not the way things are. When you talk about thousands of years, things get many names. But even in America, we have the same, we can have the same situation. If the American Indians are talking about something, they may use their name for the place, and we have another name for it. So we see the same, same issue prop up. Uh, different, different nationalities will call it. Even here in the South, you've got uh, where Mexico used to control so much of this area. You know, they had names for something, and many times we renamed it, but their history will use an older, an older name for the place. So we want to be aware that this is not unusual. It's confusing, like you say sometimes, but it's not totally abnormal. Sometimes it's also part of the poetry or, or picture that they're trying to talk about. When they use the name Zion for, for Israel, uh, for Jerusalem, they're talking about more of the poetic and also the, the place where God dwells. You know, is a little more often. Zion's used quite frequently. <laughs> but we just want to keep this up. So it says, the fortresses shall cease from Ephraim, so all those strongholds, and the kingdom from Damascus. So again, we're having this kind of a poetic parallel going on. And the remnant of Syria, they shall be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. So he's talking about that God's going to leave a remnant, just as he did with Israel. Israel was going to go into captivity, and a remnant was going to be left behind, 
and their glory was going to be destroyed. So he's saying, just as the northern kingdom is going to be destroyed and be left with a remnant, so Syria will be taken behind. And Assyria is going to be captured by the Assyrians. Now, you want to talk about getting confused. You've got Syria, and then you've got the Assyrian Empire. Uh, and Assyria takes over that whole region and is one of the great, great kingdoms that were going to rule over that area. And uh, so they're going to disappear. And so we get this little poetry saying, just like Israel has been conquered and only has a remnant, Damascus is going to be conquered and only have a remnant. And their strong fortresses are going to be torn down. And so we see this, and we saw that, that portion of it happen. And this is why I say, Damascus and Syria did fall as a major power, but Damascus was never battered into ruins. It, it took a beating during the battle, but never was turned into a heap of ruins uh, so far. Uh, there's many, most of the commentators that, I've, that I looked at or that I've looked at in the past all want to make this sound like they're using hyperbole, that it was defeated, it was destroyed, but not pounded, and it was just overstate. I still think that when the Bible says something, it means it. So I don't think that this has been fully, full prophecy, fully met yet. And remember, we've talked about this many times. There was an immediate fulfillment of a prophecy, and then sometime in the future would be the complete f fulfillment of the prophecy. When uh, the king was told in, earlier on in Isaiah that a virgin so, shall give birth to a child, one of the king's newly married <laughs> brides had a child. Okay, so they, they took that as the immediate, even though she wasn't technically a virgin after after the king slept with her, but she was a virgin when the prophecy was given. And they said this was the, the, the immediate fulfillment, but it really refers to Jesus being born of a virgin. Okay, so again, we have this quick partial fulfillment and then a later on complete fulfillment. And that's what I see here. And not all scholars agree. You know, they think that maybe he was just talking about Damascus, you know, Syria, Syria fell and the, Damascus was conquered. And I say, well, that still doesn't make it a ruinous heap. Yeah. Uh, big difference between just defeating the city, maybe knocking down some of the walls and a couple buildings or being a ruinous heap all the way around. Uh, yeah. God's prophecies are very specific. They don't need to be, you know, Okay, how can I somehow twist this one into being true? Yeah, yeah, it tells you very clearly, and I am sure that sometime in the future Damascus will cease to exist and will be a ruinous heap. It might be during the great earthquakes of the Revelation, but it'll be turned into a ruinous heap. Is there still Damascus? Yeah, Damascus is still a city to this day. That's a big city. It's a good-sized city, and it's still in Syria. And it's the capital of Syria, I believe. Yeah. You, don't, you don't hear of it. Oh, you got to listen to the international news. Whenever Syria is in trouble, they'll talk about Damascus. Yeah. Or when Syria is causing trouble, they'll talk about Damascus. So yeah, these are. That's the funny thing about some of the major cities in the Bible are still there today, even the ones that are said they're going to be destroyed, which is why there's something more coming that area and mo most of it might be when Jesus reigns and says okay you guys have given my people trouble for for 
millennia, you're no longer <laughs> going to be possible to make trouble because you're not going to be in existence. Uh, let's see. Verse 4, and it shall, come to, it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob shall be made thin and the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. Now, Jacob is going to refer to the lower part of the, the southern part of the kingdom. And it says, his glory, his pride shall be made thin. And that means brought low, laid, laid, laid low. That's just southern kingdom, southern kingdom. Yes, Judah. Judah and Benjamin. Uh, sometimes Jacob refers to the whole thing, but he's already referred to Ephraim. So in this case, I'm going to believe that this part of Jacob is talking only about the southern, southern kingdom. Uh, because Jacob was the father, was patriarch of Israel. And remember, his name has changed to Israel. But I think in this case, it's talking about the southern part. And it's because he says, his glory, his pride shall be brought low. And the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. And I, this will talk about spiritually and physically the southern kingdom was going to suffer. You know, their glory, their, their pride is going to be brought low. But also their, the flesh will be, be made lean. And they're going to go through some very hard times, especially toward the end of their kingdom when they keep getting attacked and and besieged and get starved to death. Uh, remember when the Assyrians came out, Sennacherib was outside Jerusalem with 170,000, 180,000 men, whatever. And inside the, the city of Jerusalem, it said that the, a donkey's head was going for some number of shekels. It was a very large number, you know, a piece of, piece of meat that nobody would want to eat, you know, was was going for a huge amount of money. They couldn't buy bread. And the prophet says, tomorrow you'll be feasting. And the angel of the Lord came and wiped out Sennacherib's entire army in one night. And they were able to feast on what the army left behind. So we see them saying, there's going to be these times. And it's not just that one time in the Bible that we see them being starved and suffering. But you know, this is what happens to us. If we turn our back from God, our spirits will turn, will be made lean and, and, and starve. And God will pull away the blessings that are physical. And to me, the spiritual blessings in, in, is worse than any physical bless, uh, rewards that he takes away. And been there, I know what it's like to to all of a sudden realize, you know, I've been starving in the spirit. And one of the things about it is you can slip away from God so easy and not even really realize it sometimes. And you just kind of drift away. You know, you stop reading your Bible, you stop attending church, you stop praying. And before long, you really don't know how you got there sometimes. You just find yourself having forgotten God. And, you know, basically Israel did this over and over again just kind of wandered away, worshiped other gods, you know, didn't worship gods, whatever, but turned away from God. And when we do that, God also starts removing the, the physical blessings, trying to get our attention. And we've talked about this. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. God's saying, okay, people, wake up. I'm here. I've been protecting you. It's time to wake up. 
I really believe America is facing this right now. We're getting further and further away from God, and God is shaking our natural disasters. He's you know, shaking the, the riotousness of the people and saying, people, wake up. It's time to come back to me. And I really do believe that most of our bad weather, our bad storms that we're starting to re-experience in this country are because we're turning away from God. And it's going to get worse. Before America was established as a nation and through centuries before that, American Indians have stories of terrible storms, terrible uh, hurricanes, terrible snowstorms, terrible uh, tidal waves. You know, uh, the Washington Indians talked about uh, a tidal wave that came in into the land. We haven't had that kind of stuff in our history of America. You know, God has blessed us because we have been his, his people. And the further we get from him, the more we're going to start seeing what is normal in the, <laughs> what is normal. And I've said this before, you know, we sometimes get to the place where we start taking God's blessings for granted and think that his blessings are the normal. And if we don't start keeping our focus on God and saying, thank you, God, for the blessings, eventually he'll lift off his hand to blessing and say, let me show you what normal is. And normal is not something we want to go through. We're working toward one world government. Everything is about one world government because that's what God says is going to happen. And the, the framework is going to be there before the Antichrist comes because the framework is already there. We've got the UN trying very hard to take control over just about everything. And it's only going to get worse. American, I think, got spoiled. We did. And we got lazy. But that's true of just about every great empire that's ever existed. They start out battling for their existence and, and organizing. Then they start getting the luxury and they start getting decadent. And then sin enters in, in in a massive way in homosexuality and adultery and fornication and just plain laziness. And then you get conquered by some nation that you shouldn't even be able to go to war with you. Yeah, it's, you know, we laugh about that, but a very barbarian horde, you know, that doesn't have any civilization takes over the, you know, pretty much takes over the northern part of, you know, Rome and, you know, destroys it. They were a major power. Rome was the major power at that time. Nobody could beat Rome. Well, but the Roman senators started just being in luxury. The generals started taking it, you know, for granted. Babylon, the great Babylon, Babylonian city gets conquered overnight because they're so powerful that the Medo-Persian Empire can't even, even though they're standing right outside the gate, can't come in the gate. So all the generals and the king are having a party, drunken party and all. They're having this big drunken party and, and Medo-Persians sneak into the city and take it in one night. You know, that's what happens when countries get too lax with their thinking, we're so great, nobody's ever going to conquer us. And that's what these are laying out the foundation of. You know, Damascus, you're going to fall. Verse uh, 5, and, when, and it shall be as when a harvest man gathers the corn and reaps the ears with his arms, and it shall be as he that gathers ears in the valley of Rephaim. 
Yet gleaning grapes shall be left in it, the shaking of the olive tree, two or three berries at the top of the uttermost brow, four or five in the outermost fruitful branches. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of Israel. So again, here we go into a little bit of poetry. The d destruction is going to be like when a harvest person goes out and, and gleans the field. And most of the time when they were gleaning the field, they took everything out of the field and, and stripped it bare. And it says, and it shall be like them that gather in the valley of Rephorim. And that literally translates the valley of the giants, but it, there's no, nobody ever really knew why they called it that because basically it was just a fertile, very fertile valley uh, that ran to the east of Jer Jerusalem. It's not on your map. <laughs> it's a valley that runs from, from Jerusalem down to the, down to the coast. And this was a very fruitful place. Probably did have giants when they first conquered it because it, that's an area that would include the, the, the giants. And going to take all this way just as when the people uh, glean their fields. And remember, one of the laws in Israel was that they were to leave the corners of their fields un, un, unharvested. And if they dropped anything in the field, they were to leave it so that the poor could come in and get, gather food. And we've talked about this. Some of the people who obeyed the letter of the law would cut that corner to as small as they possibly could. And they would leave you know, a foot or two and say, I left, I left the corners. <laughs> Others who were very righteous and said, we want to follow God, would leave huge, huge sections you know, on the corners so that the poor would have plenty to to harvest, but here God's talking about Gentiles coming in and just stripping it. But he goes, when they're done, there will be a remnant. And this is something we, we keep talking about. God always keeps a remnant, always. When the Jewish people were judged, there was a remnant. When Israel was taken captive in the Northern Kingdom, there was a remnant that was left behind. When the southern kingdom was taken, there was a remnant that was left behind for the Christian church. And we, we went into the dark ages when the Catholic church was taking us further and further away from the Bible. There was a remnant of believers that followed God's word. When you get into the tribulation period, there will be a remnant of followers of God amongst the world bringing the gospel. God always has a remnant. And we see this here, he's saying there will be a remnant. It will be like the three or four grains left in the, on the field. It will be like when they, when they would harvest the olive trees. One of the ways they harvest the olive trees is they shake the olives. They shake the tree and let all the ripe olives fall. And the very top olives may or may not fall. They may not even be ripe. So there's always some, some olives on the top of the tree. And I guess other you know, plants are harvested that way. I just know that they, because I've studied this a little bit, that harvest, they harvest the olives by shaking the whole tree. I, I don't know how they did that with older trees, but they probably shook various limbs of it. So God says, this is what it's going to be like. When I strip these countries, there'll be a remnant, but the majority of them will be taken and destroyed. And, you know, we look at this, God is pronouncing quite a curse upon Damascus. Now they're going to actually be taken into captivity because Assyria takes much of them into captivity, but 
in the process, a lot of people die. You know, even, even in Northern Kingdom, even though a lot of them went into captivity, a lot of them died. And the Southern Kingdom is going to have the same thing. Uh, you do not conquer a people without a lot of death. So we look at this, and, uh, and it says in verse 7, In that day shall man look to his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. He shall not look to his altars, the work of his hands, neither shall, res shall respect that which his fingers have made, neither the groves nor the images. So it says, when this trouble comes, people will do just what God is wanting them to do. They'll look to him, and they'll have respect to him, or they will give consideration and attention to him. And this is what we're looking for. And God is, when God sends judgment, it is literally to get people to look to him. And this is what we've talked about again in Revelation. The purpose of the trials, the purpose of the, the bowls and the vials and all of that is to bring people to look to God. Now, most people won't. Most people will never look to God when the judgment has come. Matter of fact, they'll shake their fist at God and say, how can you do this? Why are you doing this? Israel did this more than once. You know, we just don't understand why God's not blessing us like he did our fathers. You know, we haven't paid any attention to him. We don't pray to him. We don't give our offerings. But, you know, God doesn't pay any attention to us. We talked about this last night in Samuel. You know, they send the Ark of the Covenant out to, because it's going to give them victory. And they lose, they lose the Ark of the Covenant. And God says... Not in, not in your altars, not in the things that you made. You, I am your God, not the things that you have. And this happens sometimes with churches. They build great big church buildings and start worshiping in their wonderful buildings and forget God because they've got this wonderful building. They've got this wonderful program. And sometimes programs can replace God. And sometimes the programs are good when they start. You know, there are many good programs out there that churches start. They lift up God, they worship God, and then they get stuck. There's some churches out there that have been doing the same exact thing for 50, 60 years, and they're no longer getting results. It might have been something that gave great results when they started. They were bringing people in all over the place. People were getting saved. And then they just started saying, okay, it's not God, it's, it's the program. The program was perfect. And they keep doing the same thing over and over again. Which is why every year when we start putting together the budget, I will ask, do we want to continue doing this, that, or the other thing? Because I, want to, I don't want to say, well, we've always done it. This is what we do. We do this every year. Well, if it's not getting us any results and you know, all it is is something that we've been doing, I don't want to do it. I want to do things that God says, let's do this. And if that means changing everything, but we change everything. And wonderful thing, because churches need to do this. They need to look and say, okay, why are we doing what we're doing? Is it something that God has called us to do? Or is it just something we are doing because we've always done it that way? And that's a dangerous place to be. Very dangerous place to be. And God is saying, they're going to look to me. I want them to look to me. Not their altars, because... Their altars were where they made their sacrifice. That was where they supposedly met God. And usually it was just, okay, we're putting our sacrifice up on the altar. God is going to bless us with it. And it says, not with the works of their hands or anything that they have made. 
And we've talked about this, you know, we talked about this, you know, last night. The Ark of the Covenant was going out to battle and, and they represented God. The bronze, the, the bronze serpent that was raised up by Moses in the wilderness and when people were being bit by the snakes and all they had to do was look at that bronze serp serpent and they would be healed. Well, it came to a place where it was turned into an idol and people just worshipped it. We see here God saying, not the things that you have made. And he, he goes, you know, the ark, you know, their, their altars, anything else that they made, their groves, their images, their, their idols in there. Remember, groves are referring to the Astora, Astora fertility goddess worship, um, and their images or idols. He goes, don't look to those things. I want them to look to me, not looking to something physical. And for us as Christians, we may not have idols and everything directly like these, but a lot of times we're looking at the blessings or whatever. We're not, we're not having the blessings that we think we should have. God's not, God is not blessing me with my abundance of whatever. And unfortunately, there are so many teachers out there that are talking that we're supposed to be, have abundance. We're, we're supposed to have this stuff. And God never promised that. He just said he would be with us. He would provide our needs. He would provide safety and peace. And along with that, oftentimes he gives us the blessings, but that's not what he's obligated to give us. All he says is, I want to make sure I give you your needs. And we need to start looking at that and saying, and also understanding what needs are, especially here in America. <laughs> uh, what we think are needs, most of the world looks as great blessings. <laughs> yeah, uh, the viper is not a need. <laughs> Verse nine, and in that day, shall his strong cities be as a forsaken bough and the uttermost branch of which they left because of the children of Israel and there shall be desolation. So he says, when this happens, in that day when he's attacking and people are looking at him, their strong cities will be like a broken down, feeble uh, branch and that there won't be much left. You know, we think about this. When God brings judgment on people or a nation, it is scary to see. I've seen people in my lifetime that have gone against God and his people and watched God judge them, especially if they claim to be Christians, and watch them go through horrible judgments. History is full of nations that have rejected God and been judged. God said that the Babylonian Empire was going to be judged because of how severely they treated the Israelite people when God used them to conquer and punish Israel. And they went overboard, and God says, because of that, you shall be judged. Now, because King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar was the one that treated them so badly, but he turned to God, and that pushed it off to, to later on with his, with his son and his grandson, because of his righteous decisions, but he's the one that caused it in the first place because of his bitter violence, and that was his temperament to do this kind of stuff. But God, when he brings judgment, sometimes to me, at least from my human perspective, seems awfully harsh. Now, I know in one, on my spiritual side that he's given them just what they deserve and what they need to try to draw them to him, but from a physical perspective and the and the love and desire I have for people, it seems so harsh and cruel, and yet God knows what he's doing. 
when the children of Israel were sent into the promised land, they were told to kill every single person in the promised land. Why? Because for 400 years, they had ignored God and were getting greater evil with every passing generation and were so corrupt, so defiled, that the very animals themselves had been defiled. And we'll leave that to people's imagination to know what I mean on that. Because that's how bad they were. They had defiled the animals. And God says, okay, I'm tired. I'm through with them. Israel, take your land. They've had 400 years to convert. They've had 400 years to repent, and they have not. Nebuchadnezzar repented and gained a few extra years for his, for his empire. Yeah. We see this over and over. When Jonah went to Nineveh and preached, you know, 40 days and you'll be destroyed, repent. They repented and gained extra couple hundred years of existence before God judges, judged. Israel, for so many years in the book of Judges, would go, would go evil, would then come back and repent and get a judge. You know, they'd call on God. When people repent, God gives more time. One of the greatest hopes we have for our country is that somehow we'll have a great revival in our country and our country will repent and turn back to God. Otherwise, our country ceases to exist because that's the cycle that goes on. You go through spiritual reward and awakening. You go into the falling away from God and your judgment falls and at the bottom of judgment is either repent and go back to the top again or reject God and be destroyed. And it's nations go through this, people go through this. And I've met, and you've probably met, some people who seem to have decided to go the wrong way at the bottom of that cycle and turn completely away from God. Now, if they turn completely with no hope, then God would probably take them out completely. But God gives so many chances. He is so merciful to people that are rejecting him. And you go, sometimes you wonder, God, how can you put up with that person? God says, I'm giving them, giving them enough rope to hang themselves or repent, one or the other. And, you know, most of us wouldn't have that kind of patience with people. Most of us, all right, God, they've had three, you know, three, three strikes and you're out. You know, you know, none of this eight strikes that God, ten strikes, a hundred strikes, whatever. You know. But, you know, we judge others that way, but how long did it take us to come to God? How many strikes did we make before we turn, finally turned to God? And yet we'll usually be unmerciful toward others and God, you know, God, I don't even want to go three strike. One strike, they're out. Get them out of here. And God says, no, I want to, they've got to have enough time to know what they've done. And we need to just learn to be more merciful to people and let God be our defense and let God deal with these people. And that may mean that we get hurt in the process. It may mean that God allows them to use us to hurt us and be, be Jesus in their life in one sense to show kindness and love to them in spite of being maybe not literally put on a cross but <laughs> put on a cross in their, in, in front by them and watching them be able to see God's love shine out of us. Not easy. And yet sometimes that's exactly what God lets us do. Fox's Book of Martyr is full of those kind of pictures. Somebody dying and people getting saved. Matter of fact, you know, when Stephen was, was stoned, Paul was there. And that was probably the first thing that, that really impressed him. Watching a Christian die 
and standing up in the middle of it, probably with a smile on his face and say, I see Jesus standing at, standing at the throne of God. You know, what a picture. <laughs> Had to shake Paul up. And then later on, he gets knocked off his horse and God starts talking to him directly. But before that period, he's persecuted a number of Christians. And I'm sure that Stephen was not the only Christian he saw standing up for, for God. And that has an impression on people. When we can stand up for what we believe, right or wrong, there's an impression that's made on somebody. Well, this person really truly believed what they, what they believed, and it makes people want to look into it more. Now, and this is something that is important for us as Christians. How do we behave when bad things seem to happen to us? Do we act just like the world? You know, do we go out and get drunk like the world would? Or do we, you know, do we go out and you know, get our fix you know, like the world would? Or do we say, God, I don't understand it, but you've got a reason for it. And people look at it and say, now there's something that I want. That's something I want. And it's critical for us to have God so much in our life that we lift up Jesus and people go, I want that. Don't really know what it is they've got, but I want to be able to have that peace. I want to be able to feel that comfort in the middle of trials. And we fall flat on our face a lot, but you know, we also have times when we stand up. And sometimes our hard times are just that. So that we can stand up and lift Jesus up and have people look and say, I want what they have. And may that, that may be the only blessing that comes out of it. Maybe somebody gets saved because we stood firm. Maybe somebody just gets encouraged to walk with God in a stronger way because they go, well, if they can do it, God can give me the strength. And we don't know sometimes what it is that people are seeing or what they're going to do. Verse 10 says, Because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of your strength, therefore you shall plant pleasant plants and it shall be set with strange slips. In the day that you make the plant to grow and in the morning shall you make your seed to flourish, but the harvest shall be a heap in the day of grief and desolate sorrow. So it says, because you have forgotten God, you have not remembered what he has done for you, you shall plant pleasant, you know, good plants, and you shall reap empty branches. <laughs> That's what slips are, branches. Okay. Uh, and if that wasn't enough, he goes, you, you will make your plant, you'll plant your seed, your seed in the morning, it'll grow, and you'll take care of it in the middle of the day, and by the end of the day, you won't reap anything. You know, Paul put it this way, that he wanted to finish the race well. You know, this is the most important thing for us. We need to finish the race that God put us on. And over my years, I've seen so many people that haven't finished well. They've served God in the younger days, or at least apparently served God in the younger days. They've done, done all kinds of things and then get to some spot in their middle age or older life and slip away from God or slip away from the truth. And I don't know what it's all about sometimes. Maybe it's because they're finding an old hat and they're trying to find some excitement and they walk away from God. Maybe they forget what God has done and think it's in their own strength and God says, okay, you think it's in your strength? Let's see, let's see how you work in your own strength. I don't know all of what it is, but I've seen many people that have slipped and fallen before the finish line. And I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm just saying 
you know, they started depending on themselves instead of God. And that's something we need to be careful of. It's so easy when we, get, we experience God's blessing. And then all of a sudden we go and, you know, well, you know what? I would never make this particular sin. I have grown so much in God, I would never do, you know, put, it, put whatever it is that you would say you'd never do in there and watch ourselves fall flat on our face because we're no longer trusting in God. And here he's saying, you know, you'll, you'll plant, it'll grow, and it'll produce nothing but ruin. And very sad when we see that. Very sad when we see it in a family member, if we see it in a friend, a colleague in a church, sometimes our, our super evangelist pastors <laughs> that fall. They plant, they get a good start, they're growing something, and then they start drifting away from God and starting depending on their own strength. Verse 12, Woe to the multitude of many people which make noise like the noise of the stream and a rushing of the nations that make a rushing like the rushing of a mighty waters. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them, and they shall flee far off, and, they, and shall be as chaste as the shaft on the mountains before the wind, like the rolling thing before the whirlwind. And behold, at evening time trouble, and before the morning he is not. This is the portion of them that spoil us, and the lot of them that rob us. So here he started to talk about the judgment. Woe to the multitude of many people that make noise like the noise of the seas, and the rushing of nations that shall rush like the rushing of mighty water. I see in this pretty much where our country is right now, where the mass demands their, their, what they believe their rights are. Uh, and this is something that's really the problem with all democracies and republics in the long run is they eventually get corrupt. Uh, the Greeks said that when people realize that they can buy the vote from the taxes, the republic's over. Our founding fathers understood, they knew that principle. It was one of their concerns when they built a republic, that eventually the republic would fall when people would realize that they could buy the vote by saying, vote for me and I will give you. Every bit of our elections are on that right now. Vote for me and I will give you. Well, whose money are you taking to get it? You know, you know I'm voting for you so you can take my money to give me back. Most people don't ever come to that conclusion that it's their money that's being taken to pay for it. But, you know, this is the problem that we have, and this is what this verse is talking about. The multitude is tumultuously crying out and saying, give us. Give us what we want. The problem with the multitudes is usually what they want is not what God wants. They want what the flesh wants. They want what they want what's best for them, or at least what they think is best for them in their sin. You know, if you follow God, it's truly what's best for you, but the flesh does not understand that. You know, Adam and Eve in the garden, and the serpent goes, did God really say? You know, oh yeah, but he knows that he's, he knows that in the day that you eat it, you shall be like God's, knowing good from evil. In other words, God's keeping, keeping things from you. He doesn't want you to be blessed. You want to be like God. Who else said that? Satan himself. Okay, let's all be like God. That's what the nations rush to. That's what the multitudes rush to. 
We see it all the time in our, in our, in our country. You know, let's get this protection, that protection, this new, new right, that right, this, this gift, this, this gift. Where's it all coming from? Well, the rich, they, they have the money. Well, unfortunately, it comes from the poor, usually. But, uh, but it is all this whole process of demanding. Verse 13 says, The nations shall rush, and they're rushing like many waters, but <laughs> God shall rebuke them, and they shall flee. Now, this is going to come in its completion at the return of Jesus Christ, when he defeats the enemy and all of the enemy you know, flees from him and they're going to be destroyed. But this is also the picture of what goes on all the time. Revival comes, and God says, we're going to push back. We're going to bring godliness in. All through the scriptures we see, you know, during the king's reigns, we have a bad king, and then all of a sudden a good king will come on the scene. He'll destroy most of the idols and temples and, and reestablish the worship of God. Might last to his son, but not usually. And then they'd fall back into idol worship. Eventually, Jesus will come and reign for a thousand years in righteous judgment. And at the end of that time, he's going to let Satan come in and try to, def try to get people to rebel one last time. Why? I really think it's to prove to man that you know, even in a perfect environment, they're still going to fall. Because that's the, what's said in this day and age. Well, if we just didn't have any bad things happening, everybody would be good. Well, God's going to give man a thousand years of good, perfect living, and they're still going to fall. Not everybody, but a large, portion, a large enough portion to think that they can fight against Jesus will rebel. Just proving to man that good, good uh, perfect place is not going to lead to utopia. And we see this here. God will rebuke, and they will, you know, very poetically, they shall flee from far off and shall be as chaste as chaff in the mountains before the wind. And this is that chaff is the, the light uh, sea, light uh, husks and, and uh, husks that are thrown up. They throw them up, and the wind blows them away. And the seeds that are heavier fall back down. Uh, and then I love this other one, like, well, like a rolling thing before the wind, whirlwind. I have to look this up. I'm thinking tumbleweeds. Now, I don't know if they have anything like a tumbleweed in the Middle East. I've never seen anything. But I'm seeing, I'm seeing a, a tumbleweed in this. And they may have something equivalent, uh, something that is, gets picked up and blown around. But even in a whirlwind, if you see whirlwinds, just about anything gets tumbled around. But from our southwestern perspective, I'm thinking tumbleweeds being blown by the wind uh, when I read this. Uh, but basically just chaff, you know, all the, all the wasted, worthless stuff being blown around. And tumbleweeds are pretty much wasted, worthless stuff. Uh, and it says, behold, at evening time trouble, and before the, the, the morning he is not. For us as Christians, this is very much the way it is. At evening time, things that look bad come, show up. And we just rest in Christ, and we look out the window the next, next morning, and the trouble's gone. Kind of, kind of like 
uh, Shennacherib in, in 2 Kings 19. He's got the city of Jerusalem surrounded. They're ready to be defeated. They're, they're starving to death. And the next thing you know, he's not there anymore. His army's been destroyed, and he decides to hightail it back to Nineveh, where he never leaves again, and his sons kill him because he's such a pacifist, basically. He's gone from having a big, mighty nation to not even wanting to leave, and so his sons kill him. And, but it says our problems. And how many times when we just rest in God does the problem just seem to evaporate? You know, God, I'm just resting in you. I'm hiding in you. And we walk through the middle of the storm. And I've said it like this. We walk, the storm beats upon us and we don't feel a thing. We've, we're resting. And I don't know how many times I've had in my life where I kind of look back over what's been happening and kind of go, kind of a mess back there. A lot, lot's been going on, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I commented one time to my stepmom. I go, you know, I've had a really easy life. And she just laughed. She goes, you really believe it, but you've had a really hard time. I go, no, I've had, you know, why? Most of the time I'm resting in God. And she pointed out a few things. I'm going, yeah, well, that happened, but God, God was in control. Yeah, that happened, but God was in control. You know, when we really, truly understand that God is in control and we're just resting in him, life gets pretty easy. You know, we, look, we can look back and say, well, yeah, a lot of crazy things have been going on, but God, thank you. You've, you've, you've uh, been my, oh, however you want it, rock, hiding, my, my fortress, my shield, my ark, whatever you want to say, he's the one that protects us from the storms. And when we just trust in him, we can be looking around and just be blessed and say, God, you're, you're in control. And to me, that's the greatest thing. God is in control. He's just protecting us through the storm. You know, Noah and his family did not miss the storm. They just rose above the storm because God protected them. You know, uh, Abraham had lots of bad things happen to him, but God protected him. Somebody like Joseph you know, was in the God's hands and everything looked like it was going the wrong way for most of his life. You know, Dad's grooming him to take over the family because he's his favorite son and his brother sell him into slavery. Pretty bad in and of itself. It raises up to the top of the slave owner's household and gets falsely accused of rape and gets sent into prison. Starts becoming top dog in the prison that nobody would know about. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he gets promoted to the number two in all of Egypt. You know, but if you look for 13 years, he's going the wrong way. He keeps going further and further and further and further away. But he kept his faith in God. And God all of a sudden lifted him up. You know, we don't know what God's got in store for us. Sometimes it's just to be that example to others of lifting Christ up. But, you know, it is so much fun saying, God, you're my shelter, my ark, whatever term you want to use that you feel comfortable with. He, he describes himself as all of those things. You know, our shepherd who takes us to the pleasant valleys who makes sure we're fed. You know, whatever term you like, he's the one that guides us. Shepherd's probably the good one because sometimes the sheep wander off away from the shepherd like we tend to do. And he has to come and get us and say, hold it back this way. <laughs> you know, but he says, in the evening time trouble, in the morning it's gone. This is the portion of them that spoil us and the lot of them that rob us. God is our protector as his children. And I love that we can trust in him. He will protect. 
The one the most gracious thing that could ever happen is just to let God defend. And I've learned the hard way in many cases. I used to try to defend myself a lot. But it seems the more I spoke, the more I tried to defend myself, the worse things got. And it's much easier saying, all right, God, it's in your hands. And I've seen some people taken completely out when God is the defender. So much so, sometimes I'm, I'm almost afraid for them. You know, God, did you really have to do that much to them? On the back of my mind, I know that he had to, otherwise he wouldn't have done it. But, you know, I know a man, it wasn't attacking me, it was attacking a pastor that, of the church that I was going to about 30, 25 years ago. And God destroyed his family. And it's really sad that his family suffered for his sin. He did too in the long run. But he had two deaths in his family and a divorce and, and all kinds of problems in his family because of his attacks that were unwarranted that he wouldn't repent of. God will do hard things to those that will come against us, eventually. <laughs> Not as fast as we would like to see it. You know, you know most of us want it to happen yesterday. <laughs> you know, God, defend me. Uh, go back in time and take care of it yesterday. You know, last week when he really hurt me or she hurt me, go get him. But God says, in his time, he'll take care of it. Right, they have to have that chance. God is going to give them every opportunity to repent. And then comes our big trial if they repent. Will we forgive them? And you know, sometimes that's pretty hard. It's pretty easy to say, okay, they got what they deserved. A little harder, though, when they've really hurt us and it's like they've repented and we're going, okay, I accept that and truly forgive them, just as God forgives us. And that's sometimes very hard. And you have to forgive them even if you don't know if they're that's, <laughs> That's where we should be. We should just forgive them. You know, and I've heard people, well, I'll forgive them. They haven't asked me to be forgiven. I go, That's not what God ever says to do. And I'm glad that God didn't forgive us, wait to forgive us until we had asked for it. He sent Jesus to die for us while we were his enemy and literally forgave us before it ever before we ever asked for the forgiveness. Because he's put all the sin under the blood. We don't get the righteousness of Christ until we accept Jesus Christ. But our, our sin is under the, under the blood. The world sins under the blood. Okay? Even the lost person's sin is under the blood. But when they stand before, G, before God at the white throne judgment, it's what are they wearing? The righteousness of Christ or their own righteousness, filthy rags? And God's going to say, nope. You know, God has, as I love to say this, God has the ultimate dress code. You do not get in, into heaven without being clothed in Jesus Christ. If you're not clothed in Jesus Christ, you do not get into heaven. Plain and simple. You know, people are not going to end up in hell because of their sin. They're going to end up in hell because they're not perfect. And they're trying to do things in their own strength, which is why trying to earn heaven will never work. Because all they're going to do is, Isaiah 63 tells us, stand before God, or 66.3, uh, stand before God in their own filthy rags. And God's going to say, I don't let that kind of dress code in heaven. You're not dressed right. You've rejected Jesus. And they'll be sent into hell. I know that's what's sad, because people may know, but they just haven't accepted it. They haven't made him their Lord. Haven't made, you know, haven't said, God, I need you as my Savior. And 
this is, you know, important. You know, there's many people who've gone to church all their life that don't know Jesus. They know all about him. They know that he died on the cross. They even know that he died for sin. But they have not made him personally theirs. And they're literally usually trusting in their own good works. God, I go to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I read my Bible every day. I even, I even say prayers. I don't know who I'm praying to, but I'm, I'm saying prayers. I'm, I'm using your name, but I'm, you know, and God's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. you know, and this is the scary thing. When he indwells us, there's a difference. When he indwells us and is in charge of our life, there is a difference in our life, and that's an important difference than just naming him and saying, God, I'm following you. I'm reading. I'm doing all these. Here's my checklist, God. I'm, I'm checking off all these good things. I'm really a good Christian. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm better than those guys over there who say they're Christians that are, that are really following you. But, you know, they don't, they don't always pray, God. They, they don't always speak the right words. But God says, I know them. They're, they're changing. <laughs> they're becoming more like me with each passing day. You're becoming more of a Pharisee with each passing day. And we've got to be careful. Where are we with God? And this is why Paul says, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Not do I have a lot of good works on there, but am I in the faith? Is God indwelling in me? And am I literally being changed? As 1 Corinthians says, from glory to glory, he's changing me. From where I was to something even more glorious. Each year we, we look back, and I, and I oftentimes tell people, look back. Are you more like God today than you were last year, two years ago, three years ago? We'll never be God. We'll never be exactly like him. But the key word is more like him. Okay. Do I hate certain things in, that, are, that are sin? You know, what's really impressive is when you look and say, you, you, know, you react in a situation and say, I would never have acted that way a year ago, right. two years ago. Yeah, well, you know, that's my history sometimes when I watch some of these TVs. I used to watch that show. I used to think that show was good just because it didn't have, you know, cussing and, and sleeping around. And, but look at all the bad stuff it has in it. Oh, I used to believe in that. No, I'm but, but that shows that you're actually in Christ, that you say, you know, all these. And again, it's not me personally deciding I've got to quit this stuff. It's God changing who I am in the internal. He changes me. It's not me saying, you know, well, I've got to give up this. I've got to give up that. I've got to stop doing this. It's all of a sudden I realize saying, wow, God, you've made that change, and I didn't even, I didn't even realize it was coming. I didn't even realize it had happened. The Holy Spirit has indwelled us. He's taken our flesh and crucified it, and he's replaced it with himself in little bits and pieces all over me, and I just start talking the right way and saying the right things and thinking the right things. I wish it could be done all one quick, quick fell swoop, which it will be when we're glorified. But you know, it's, you look back and say, wow, I used to think this way and now I don't. We're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to always stay close to you and to keep seeing you in all that we do. And we just thank you for your love and your care that you always have in a remnant. And Lord, we thank you that you care enough about us to change us to be more like you with each passing day when we bring you into our heart. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.